Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. Well, Revelation chapter number one is where, again, we will be at tonight. We'll begin in verse number nine. It's my desire to have us finish the chapter and this section that we are going to read here in Revelation chapter number one commences really the first section of the book. It's the first and the shortest section of the book. You'll remember that as we were looking at uh, this book uh, several weeks ago that we saw in verse number four that we were given an outline of what the book of Revelation is all about where it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him uh, which uh, is, which was, and is to come. That's uh, not the correct verse, although he uh, uh, is and was and is to come. Um, that's not the verse I was looking for. We'll, we'll continue on. I'll get to it in a moment. Uh, but the uh, idea is the Bible tells us that there, in the book of Revelation, we have things that are past. Uh, we have things that are happening at the moment and things which are to come, uh, just as Christ is the one who was and is and is to come is timeless. And we're going to look at some of those things here tonight, and particularly in verses number nine and on. I've titled this message, The Vision Commences, because from what we have seen before, we're kind of getting background understanding of what the book is about, who is writing the book, who is being addressed to, and uh, most of all, who Jesus Christ is. That's what we've seen all throughout the book so far. But now, the actual vision itself is going to begin. We're going to see some of the symbolism that's here tonight, and we're going to start to unravel some of this. But we see, just as I hope that we go all throughout the Revelation and see this, that's not just symbolism for the sake of symbolism. We're not just reading of these visions just for the sake of reading them. But there's real application that is available to us and helpful to us where we are. And that's what I want us to see tonight. So please remain seated. We're going to read Revelation chapter number 1. And we're going to begin in verse number 9 and go to the end of the chapter. Where it says this, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. You'll remember we saw that in verse number eight last week. With what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, here it is again, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And here's the verse I was trying to reference before, but I was getting confused with verse number four. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are 
and the things which shall be hereafter. That's the internal outline that we have in verse number 19 of the book of Revelation. Verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And so verse number 20 begins by saying the mystery of the seven stars and the mystery of the seven golden candlesticks. That's telling us there's a vision and that's also telling us that there is a mystery to be unraveled. And so it's our desire to be able to unravel this tonight. And I'll be honest with you, this will be one of the easier prophecies to unravel because the prophecy itself, as well as the answer to the mystery, are all found in the same text. That's not always going to be the case as we go through the book of Revelation. But I will say it sets a pattern for us to understand that the prophecies we see, we don't just get to interpret however we want, with whatever we think, or with whatever we feel. That is an allegorical interpretation of the book of Revelation or an allegorical interpretation of the Word of God, which means that what you see is not really real. It just signifies something else. And the problem with that type of interpretation, well, there's many, but the main problem is this. You can fill in the blanks with whatever you want it to be. But I see that the book of Revelation tells us when there are these mysteries, when there are these visions, that they can be interpreted through other scriptures in the Word of God. And that pattern is set for us here, right here in chapter number one, because he says, here is the answer to the mystery of which I have given you here in this same vision. And we might get a very easy answer because he supplies it to us right here in the text. It won't always be that way, but I do want us to go through these things here tonight and make application as we see that the vision commences. So uh, let's go ahead and get right to it tonight. There's four things on the back of your prayer bulletin that I want to point out about this vision four different things. And the first is I want to see the seven churches. Number one, I see the seven churches. And this goes back to verse number 11. And it's interesting, we're going to see the number seven found throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, I was reading just today and I found, you know, seven is the number of perfection in the word of God. That's why we saw the seven spirits a few messages ago here in Revelation chapter number one, we'll see the seven spirits again in Revelation chapter number four, not saying there's seven Holy Spirits, but the perfection, the perfecting work of the Holy Spirit. I didn't realize this, but did you know the number seven is actually found 49 times in the book of Revelation? Well, that's seven times seven. Uh, that ultimate perfection found in the Word of God. There is no mistakes in the Word of God. And even down to the very digits that you find, not the verse numbers necessarily, because we've supplied those as time goes on for readability, but the numbers themselves that we find, seven churches, seven candlesticks, seven stars. Uh, these are there for a reason, the perfection uh, that is there all throughout. But we go back to these seven churches, and this goes back to verse number four, where it says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. So we're reminded that this book of Revelation is written, it's addressed to seven specific, real, literal churches. That these were the first initial recipients of the book of Revelation. Now these churches are listed in verse number 11, where it says, what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, when it says Asia, it's talking of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey today, if you're looking at a map. And these seven churches are a constellation on a map of Asia Minor. And they are in towns called Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos. 
Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us now, but for those of you that have read your Bibles, which looking around the room, well, that's all of you. Uh, if you've read your Bibles, you know those seven churches are going to come into play the next two chapters, aren't they? Because in chapter number two and chapter number three, each of those churches is going to get an individual message. And even more specific than that, there is someone specific within those churches who is going to get that message, which we'll look at and the interpretation thereof uh, here in just a little moment. But chapters two and three are totally dedicated to these seven churches. And everything that follows in the remainder of this chapter helps us to understand the gravity of these messages that are being translated to these churches. They need to know the specific message that's being given to their church, but they also need to know of the uh, end times uh, understanding that comes from Revelation chapter number four all the way to Revelation chapter 22 to the fact of heaven itself and what heaven will be like. Uh, God wants them to be addressed with all of these things. Now, why are these seven churches important to us today? Well, and it's not because they still exist, because I don't believe they do. And it's not because I believe that these seven churches in chapters number two and three give us a timeline of church history. I may get into that a little bit when we get there, uh, but there are some who think that these churches represent a timeline of church history. And I think you got to really massage the dates and massage these churches to fit them into uh, church ages, if you will. But I think they're important because when we get into chapter two and chapter number three, you're going to find all the different kinds of churches. There's a church that's lukewarm. Uh, there's a church that has brotherly love, Philadelphia. Uh, there's a church uh, that has lost its first love. There's a church that's allowed doctrinal heresy to step in in the form of Jezebel. Uh, there are all types of different churches that are there. I believe the fine types of churches that are being addressed in chapters two and three that are being introduced to us here in chapter number one are the kind of churches that you find anywhere today because there are churches that are hot for Jesus Christ. I thank the Lord for that. I want to be that type of church that burns hot and burns brightly uh, for Jesus Christ. I hope that's what we are. But there are churches that are there just because they're organizations that are there just for the sake of organization. They've lost their first love. They're there uh, because they are a social club or they're there because they're a supper club or they're there uh, because they have some other purpose, but they're not there for the sake of the gospel. And there are others who uh, are existing and are striving for the work of the gospel, but they're allowing false doctrine to seep in. We're going to look at these seven churches and we're going to see seven churches in their types that still exist today. And I believe we'll see that as we go on. And this is why these seven churches are so important. But going on, as we look at these types that we find here in the book of Revelation in chapter number one, we don't just see the seven churches, but we also see the seven candlesticks. The seven candlesticks. Look at verse number 12. It says this, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, remember, John is being addressed by this great voice. John is being caught up in the spirit on the Lord day, on the Lord's day. And as John uh, hears a voice behind him, he turns around and the first thing that he sees is not Jesus Christ. Now we're going to get to him in a moment. That's the very next verse. But the first thing he sees is not Jesus Christ. The first thing that he sees are these seven uh, golden candlesticks. So we ask ourselves, well, what are these candlesticks? Well, 
The blessing is, if you'll remember, we got to verse number 20, we had the interpretation of exactly what the candlesticks were. So jump down to verse number 20. Let's look at it again. It says, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in the, my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Well, really, number one and number two are actually one and the same, aren't they? I've separated them because they're separated here in our text, and I think it's important that we do. But the seven candlesticks really just represent in this vision, both in chapter number one and how they're addressed in chapter two and chapter three, they, the candlesticks represent these seven churches. Now, why is this important? Why does he call them candlesticks? Well, again, symbolism is important. Now, I, you know, you don't need to be a scientist to know this, but candlesticks don't give light on their own. A candlestick in and of itself cannot give light. Uh, that's just not what a candlestick does. A candlestick has one purpose, as far as I'm aware of. It holds a candle. A candlestick serves that purpose to hold a candle to help give light. You don't want to just necessarily hold a candle on its own. The wax could drip. Uh, it's just not something you really want to do. Uh, you want to place a candle on a candlestick. And that's a symbol of what the church is to be. The church in and of itself is not the light. We are not the light. We collectively are not the light. That is not what Liberty Baptist Church is. Liberty Baptist Church is not the light. But what are we to do? We are to uphold the light to bring light to a dark place. That is what God has called us to do. We're not the light, but we're the candlestick to be uplifted so that in a dark place, light can be brought in and can be shown to all who are in the house. You know, why am I going to the Easton Police Department tomorrow? I'm hoping that we can shine a little bit of light in a dark place. I'm not saying that the, the, <laughs> the police department themselves are, are dark in the sense that, that they're evil or wicked. I certainly am not trying to suggest that in the sense of that some are trying to suggest about the police departments uh, of our country today. But I'll say this, I assume there's many that don't know Jesus Christ their Savior because, well, the police department's filled with people. And pretty much anywhere you go where there's people, there's people who don't know Jesus Christ their Savior. So what do we do? Well, we're to be that candlestick as the church. We're not the light, but we want to uphold the light. Uh, in the school uh, district, uh, the schools are a dark place. When you consider what's being taught and the difficult things, more than ever, what a dark place. We need Christians to stand up as light in the darkness to be able to witness and to teach and to, to preach to those people. And, and I know churches that are able to have uh, ministries in public schools. I think that's a wonderful thing. I would love to be able to be a point someday where we can go into an OA and have a student's uh, club uh, about the Bible or into a middle school and do something like that. We're not at a place where we can do that yet. But what a wonderful thing to go and shine the light in a dark place because that's what the church is supposed to do. We don't just collect our light here and just keep the light here. No, we take the light of Jesus Christ out and we tell as many people as we do. And that's why we have tracks and that's why we have uh, gospel literature. Uh, that's why we have these type of things because we want to tell as many people as we can about Jesus Christ. The candlestick makes light higher and it makes it more easily seen. And we're to lift high the cross, aren't we? We're to lift high Jesus Christ in the light of the gospel. That's why Philippians 2, verses 15 and 16 says, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, 
in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Well, how do we shine as lights in the world? We hold forth the word of Christ. That's how we are to be that light in a dark place. I remember when I was in Bible college, I was a freshman and I sat in the front row and I, you know, there was not many who sat in the front row and I just did because I just like to be a contrarian. And so Baptists don't sit in the front row, hence. Uh, but uh, I thought I'd sit in the front row with a couple other uh, guys. That's what we did. And I remember one man came to preach. His name was Randall Moody. And uh, he started to preach and, and he read his text and he was done. He closed his Bible and he did this. And that's all he did. And it was uncomfortable because it was about 30 seconds. He just stood there with his hand out like this. And so finally, after about 30 seconds, I'm looking around. Nobody else is doing anything. I didn't know if he had uh, suffered a, a stroke or, or what had happened. Uh, but I just got up and I 400 students there. I got up in front of all of them and I grabbed the Bible out of his hand and I sat down. And he pulled out another Bible from underneath the pulpit and put it up. And he says, young man, I was waiting for somebody to be able to come and grab that Bible. And he preached from this text, holding forth the word of life. And that Bible was a new Bible, which he gave to me. And he signed it after church and put on the front, first responder, as a reminder to me that I got up and took that Bible. Uh, when I, As soon as I got up, I thought, this is a bad idea when everyone was looking at me. And it was a great idea. I cherished that Bible uh, for many years. And so it was a, a blessing. But it always reminded me, what are we supposed to do? Hold forth the word. Good things happen when you hold forth the word. Look, when you don't hold forth the word, not much happens. You hold it forth. You hold forth the light. It may not seem like much, but you never know. Who, who would ever thought I'm, I'm with Brother Vince today? And, 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 and a woman says, oh, yeah, you know, we'll come. Now, I don't know if she'll come or not, but I know this. She would never have thought of coming before she got a track. And praise the Lord, or, or I pray, rather, that she flips over that track and realizes she needs more than just a church visit. She needs something far greater than that. She needs Jesus Christ as her Savior. She said she was born and raised Catholic and hadn't been to church for a while. And I said, we would love to have you uh, to come on Resurrection Sunday. And so well, what's that doing? It's, it's being the candlestick. And these churches there in Asia Minor were to be these seven golden candlesticks. And what I love about it in verse number 13, it says, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Stop right there. So there are these seven churches. These local churches are independent churches. Each operates independently of one another. That's what the local church, I believe, is to do, that we don't need a denominational hierarchy in the sense that someone uh, from on high tells the church how it's to run itself, that the church is to organize and to be accountable uh, to itself and to, most importantly, Jesus Christ. I believe that's it. But at the same time, although we are independent, we are interdependent on one another. And as we do what God calls us to do, who dwells in the midst of us? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, could I put it this way, is the glue that holds the churches together that should. So is it a surprise when churches fight over who Jesus Christ is, why we have the splintering that we have today between churches uh, and such? It shouldn't surprise us at all because Jesus is the one who is to hold us all together. By the way, that's why we don't call the cults Christians. 
because we don't call the Mormons Christians or we're the Jehovah Witness Christians because they don't believe in the Jesus Christ, the Son of Man that we see here that holds all the churches together. In fact, that term Son of Man, I think I may have mentioned some of this Sunday night when I was at a visit with Brother Vince uh, on Saturday. We were trying to visit somebody and the Jehovah Witnesses come up and they said, Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. I said, yes, he's the Son of Man. I said, but is he the Son of God? And the guy goes like this. Oh, and he kind of bent over like that. They wanted to recognize Jesus' humanity, which by the way, he was 100% God, but they don't want to recognize his deity, that he was 100% God. 100% God, 100% man. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, it tells us. And so that's why we have to have the right view of Christ because he is the one that is dwelling in the midst of all the churches. So number two, we see the seven golden candlesticks. Number three, I also see this tonight. I see the seven stars, the seven stars. Look at verse number 16. And he had in his right hand, and this is the son of man, uh, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth uh, in his strength. We'll address the, less, the rest later. But at the beginning of verse 16, it says, and he had in his right hand seven stars. Now, once again, we have symbolism. And then once again, verse number 20 gives us the answer to the symbolism. However, there's still a little bit of a mystery that remains. So we see there are the seven stars. What or who are the seven stars? Drop again to verse number 20, where it says this, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. There we go. The seven stars are the seven angels. But here's the question. What are the seven angels? Say, Pastor, an angel is an angel. Well, that is true. An angel is an angel. But I would point a couple things out to you about that. Starting in verse number two, or chapter number two, each of the seven letters are not actually addressed to the seven churches. That's a common misconception. That's something that we often repeat because we've heard that. I may even repeat that sometimes just out of, I hate using the term, a laziness in the way that I'm trying to present it. These letters are not actually presented to the seven churches. Look at chapter two, verse number one. Look at what it says. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. And we could continue on and we could see which each of the churches this is going to repeat itself. So these letters are not actually written to the churches. They're written to the angel of the churches, which causes us to ask this question. Is God giving specific instructions to guardian angels for each church? I'm not saying that couldn't be the case. I'm saying as I read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, I have a hard time fitting that in to exactly what I see there, that God would need to give instruction and some very specific instructions to guardian angels of each church. But here's what I know about the angels, the stars. Daniel chapter 12 tells us that those who turn some to righteousness are as the stars of heaven. The word angel literally means a messenger. So who would be the most likely candidate, in my opinion, of who these seven stars are? I believe it would be clear and most logical that these angels are the pastors of these seven churches. 
They are the messengers for the church. They are the ones being held accountable for the leadership of the church. They are the ones that need to be given instruction in how they lead the church. Now, listen, I'm not going to get an argument with someone if they think that it's an actual angel. I could understand why they would. But I also believe this interpretation of them being the pastors of the churches gives these letters, these seven letters coming up in the next chapters, some additional weight and heft for us, knowing that there is some real accountability for the pastors and leadership of each individual church. And it's amazing to me sometimes that those who covet leadership and those who really want leadership, but they don't think about the responsibilities of leadership, they only think of the rights that come to leadership. And there's some real responsibilities here. And the angels of the churches, these pastors, I believe in chapters 2 and 3, have some pretty heavy things laid at their feet. But I believe that these seven stars are the seven angels or the seven pastors, the seven messengers of these seven churches. And I think that will become quite important to us as we go through in helping us be accurate in how we portray these letters, but also understanding how we frame how they are important for us today. So what do we see? We see the seven candlesticks. We see the seven stars. Uh, we see the uh, seven churches. And number four, we see the Son of Man. We see the Son of Man. And getting back to what I just mentioned a few moments ago, I do want to remind you, when you see the term Son of Man in the Bible, it is not diminishing or denigrating who Jesus Christ is. It is not a diminishment of his character to call him the Son of Man. There's a lot of reasons for that. Colossians 2.9 says this, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Remember that term Godhead, the Trinity? that we talked about before, that word Godhead is what's used for the Trinity in the Bible. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's 100% God. Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man 88 different times within the New Testament. And guess who referred to himself the most as the Son of Man? Jesus himself. And so it is not a problem. It's not problematic for us to use this phrase, Son of Man, or to find this term son of man here in our text. In fact, the term son of man, I believe, actually shows who he is and shows the side of his humanity, but yet at the same time identifies him as God. Because you might remember back in Daniel chapter 7, and I won't make you turn there tonight for sake of time, but back in Daniel chapter 7, it talks of the ancient of days. And when it talks of the ancient of days, you'll see a lot of the same characteristics, the same attributes that you see in these verses that we just read. But it says this in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Who else could that be than Jesus Christ? There is no one else you could use those terms for than Jesus Christ. And he, in Daniel chapter 7, is being called the Son of Man. So I believe it's important that he's called Son of Man here in Revelation chapter 1. And the reason why is it's establishing that link between Daniel and Revelation. Remember, there's a reason we start in the book of Daniel a year before we even went into the book of Revelation. is because the link between the two books is strong. And understanding the visions between the two books 
is helpful to us, whether it's the Son of Man, whether it's the 70th week, uh, whatever it may be, it's important. But we see here that the Son of Man is prominent here. And just like last week, we saw his attributes. And I won't re-preach those, but we saw his great attributes last week. This week, we see an emphasis on his appearance. But what I find interesting about it is even in his appearance, it speaks of his attributes. Because each of his uh, appearances gives us a little bit more of an understanding of who he is. Look at all the things that it talks about, uh, starting in uh, verse number 13. It talks of his attire. It talks about the fact that he was clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. He had this, this uh, outer clothing as well as a, an undergarment that would uh, cover much of his upper torso. And depending on who you read, he's clothed either as a priest or a judge. And I'll be honest with you, either one is fitting. Either one is fitting when you're looking at the character Jesus Christ. What about his head and his hair? Uh, it, it talks about the fact in verse number 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Uh, that matches the description that we find in Daniel chapter 7 of the Ancient of Days as well as uh, the Son of Man. His eyes, it says, were as a flame of fire. And of course, the flame speaks of judgment uh, as he sees all. Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Meaning this, the eyes of God are upon all. The eyes of God see all. And his eyes, that flame, uh, speaks of the great judgment that can come. His feet, it says, uh, are like unto fine brass, as if they were burned in a furnace. Again, that brass speaks of righteousness and judgment. Not just judgment, but righteous judgment. Makes me think of the brazen altar, going all the way back into the Old Testament, the tabernacle. Uh, his feet are like fine, refined brass. His voice, it says uh, in verse number 15, as the sound of many waters, Ezekiel 43 verse 2 says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a voice of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. The Psalms also speaks of the great, mighty voice that God has. And I related a few weeks ago to the fact that we'd just gone to Niagara Falls and heard the deafening sound of the water. And that was just from a great distance, let alone some of you that have been on the Maid of the Mist or, or one of those vessels that goes right near the water. I can't even imagine what that would be like. But that's like the voice of the Father and, and, and the voice of Christ. And we see that uh, right here. Uh, his right hand, it talks of, in his right hand, the seven stars. Well, who is being held there? Uh, those pastors, I believe, are held in the hand of God that he is holding them who hold the candlestick. So who is in the hand of Jesus Christ? The pastors and the churches. He's in the midst of them and he's holding them all at the same time. What a great stability. Uh, and it says the right hand, which in biblical times would have been the hand of power, that in his hand of power, he has the churches close to him. It talks of his mouth. It says, uh, and it says um, in his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword. Well, <laughs> Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and is powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thought and intents of the heart. And it talks of his countenance and his countenance was as the sun shineth in strength and consider the Mount of Transfiguration and think of the connection to his glorified countenance and his strength uh, that's 
we see that when he no longer, uh, when he lays aside that humanity that he had, where, where he did hunger and he did thirst and he did uh, have um, a physical needs. The fact that we see his countenance as the sun shineth in strength, that glorified nature that he has, Jesus Christ. I mean, we don't even have a glimpse. Moses just saw a glimpse of God and it was more than he can handle. Can you imagine uh, what that is? And so we see all of that here. And what's the cumulative effect of all of this and particularly of the Son of Man? Verse 17. And when I saw him, I felt his feet as dead. And he laid his hand right upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. He repeats it again. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of death and hell. I've heard people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give Jesus a big hug. Or I'm, I get to heaven, I'm going to give Jesus a high five. Well, you may get to that point, but I tell you, before you do anything, you and I will fall on our faces before God. Because when we recognize him for who he is, the first thing is not going to be giving him a fist bump. Like, hey, we made it. Here we are. No, I don't see that anywhere in the word of God. When we see him, this glimpse we have here is overwhelming if you're really to dwell on it. And when we stand before our creator, our savior, when we stand before him, we won't stand before him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And here is John who lay before him as dead. By the way, you see John get nearly to that position with the angels. And the angels have to tell him, hey, John, uh, get up. I'm not God. <laughs> get up. Uh, I am not worthy of worship. If we see just that glimpse of heaven through the angels, how much more so would it be with the Son of Man? What an amazing thing that is. So we look at all these things, the churches, the candlesticks, the stars, and most importantly, the Son of Man. And so we ask ourselves this question, why is this portion of the chapter so important? And this is what I want to just give you as a concluding thought tonight. We draw courage in the fact that the Son of Man is the one who upholds the church and upholds the congregation. We should draw courage in the fact that it's the Son of Man that holds the churches and the congregations right there in his hand. It's God who strengthens us. It's God who upholds us. It's God who gives us authority. It's God who gives us power. It's God who gives us purpose here in the church. We can be more than conquerors through Christ as a church. And even in times and seasons where it seems like church doesn't work anymore. And even in a society where it seems like church doesn't work anymore. And even when we hear churches talk about the fact that church doesn't work anymore. I see this, that God has given us a pattern and the Son of Man has us right there in his hand. It's not just that he has our salvation in his hand, because remember, that's the case, but that he has us as a church right there. We're never more secure than we are in his hands. We'll find out the church of Philadelphia, Jesus is, is, is uh, addressed as the one who opens doors that no man can close and closes doors that no man can open. What a wonderful, blessed thought that is. But we should have confidence because if he is the one that we go in his name, that we have all confidence and all authority. And I'll use this example and I'll be done. Many of you know I'm on the Commission of Disabilities here in town and I've gone through training called Community Access Monitoring Training, CAM training. And I'm able to go into businesses and to look and find ADA and AAB violations. ADA is the federal handicap law and AAB is the state handicap law. I'm able to 
if need be, to go into a, a business and do so. I very rarely, in the four years I've been on the, the commission, actually needed to do so. But there was one restaurant in town that needed a visit, and we drew straws through Zoom, and apparently I was the one that got the straw to go and, and do uh, the lookout. I went in, and I greeted them. And I, when, when we go to something like this, we don't go as people that are trying to find people or anything like that. It's, it's about education and about those kind of things. It, it's the way it should be, quite honestly, not, um, not going in and trying to be punitive. Uh, but I, I remember going to this restaurant, and I went in. It was near closing time. I tried to not go at a busy time. I tried to make sure that it was a time that it would be more convenient for them because I wasn't super comfortable doing this. But I went in, and I remember that I was actually kind of nervous going in and trying to explain these things. But I ended up saying I'm from the Commission of Disabilities and it still doesn't register because a lot of people don't understand what the Commission of Disabilities is. I found there are people who work at Town Hall that don't know what the Commission of Disabilities is. But I took my card, and this is not my card um, from the town because I couldn't find it today, but it is a representative of the card. On the card with my name, Commission of Disabilities, is the town seal. You know what's amazing is that once I showed the town seal, all of a sudden something clicked in the head. Oh, come over here, look at this, do this, and uh, you know what can we do over here? How can we make this right? And I kind of felt, hey, <laughs> well, all right, uh, right now, forthwith. You know, so uh, no, it wasn't quite like that. But but the idea is is the seal gave me authority. I went in, and all of a sudden, well, if you don't listen to me, there's a whole group of people that stand behind this seal that are represented by me and it would be best if you just you know go along with this or even if you don't go along with it that we do it in a way that benefits everybody and I found that just by showing that card it really made a big difference do you realize that sometimes we think it's a negative when we go in the name of Jesus Christ Sometimes like well if I name the name of Jesus Christ what do people think do you realize that's where our authority is our authority is in the Son of Man. That should be what we lead off with, not what we bury. Now, we have to be careful. What if I went into the farmer's dark? Whoops. Um, what if I went into a restaurant? What if I went in and acted the fool? It's possible, isn't it? Well, it's possible if it's me. Uh, it's, I realize what I'm asking you to answer. Uh, it's possible that I could act, act, act the fool or, or not represent the town well. You know what they can do? Take it away. There's a mechanism. Someone could be taken off a town board. If I don't represent the town well, I'm removed. Say, pastor, you don't find that in the Bible. No, I don't talk about someone's salvation getting taken away. But you will find later on that Christ says this. If I was to paraphrase loosely, you need to shape up as a church, or I'm going to take away your candlestick. Meaning this, that they would lose their authority as a church if they do not operate in the way that God had called them to operate. So going in the name of the Son of Man doesn't give us a, a blank slate to do whatever we want to do. We go in the name of the Son of Man and we operate as the Son of Man would have us to be, in the likeness of the Son of Man, as far of a likeness as we are, but yet to show, to uphold that light in a dark world. When I see that I'm in His hand, when I see this church is in His hand, it gives me a lot of confidence. 
not cockiness, confidence that if we stay in him and do what he asks us to do, he will uphold us as he upheld those stars, those candlesticks, those pastors, those churches. He's still in the business of doing that today. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in His Word.